Welcome to Mysteries to Die For and this toe tag. I am T.G. Wolf, and I'm here with Jack, my piano player and producer. This is normally a podcast where we combine storytelling with original music to put you at the heart of a mystery. Today is a bonus episode that we call a toe tag. It's the first chapter from a fresh release in the mystery crime or thriller genre. Today's featured release is The January Corpse by Neil Albert. Okay, interesting tidbit before we start. The Dave Garrett series was planned as a 12-book series, and books 1 through 6 were published between 1991 and 1996. Neil is now picking the series back up and reissuing the first six books, the first of which is today's toe tag, The January Corpse. The Dave Garrett series is set in 1990. So, cell phones were on the scene. Turns out those were invented way earlier than I remember. Uh, But they weren't every day like they are now. And were meant for, wait for it, making phone calls. There's no internet, no smartphones, and people still use payphones. That's right, we're going old school with the January corpse. Alright, so let's jump into chapter one. Sorry, I gotta rearrange a few things here. All right, there we go. Chapter one, Friday, 11 a.m. I couldn't stand the sight of him, but I took his case anyway. I'd been sitting in the spectator section of the courtroom in the basement of the Court of Common Pleas of Philadelphia County. At night, the room was used for criminal arraignments, and it showed. Everything in the room was dirty, even the air. I breathed in a mixture of grit, poverty, and despair. The bare wooden benches were carved in complex, overlapping swirls of graffiti, initials, gang emblems, and phone numbers. Some people called it street art. I didn't. To my left, 15 feet off the ground, a clock was built into the wall. It was missing its hands and most of its brass numerals, and the few that were left were muddy brown. Not that I cared what time it was. As long as I sat there, waiting to testify, my meter was running. Today, the room was being used by the family court for a custody case. This was the second day of the trial, and the wife's attorney was hoping to get me on the stand today. There's no such thing as a custody case with class. The couple were both doctors, both well-respected, married 10 years, two children, both girls aged 4 and 7. They had separated two years ago. Each had a condo. His was just south of Society Hill in a newly gentrified neighborhood. Hers was on Rittenhouse Square. They both had memberships at the usual country clubs, plus timeshares in Aspen and Jamaica. She drove a BMW, he drove a Benz. It had been amicable at first. Neither one was leaving for someone else. They just didn't like being married to each other anymore. There was no one stirring up trouble. Most spouses need encouragement from a third party to really get nasty. A new girlfriend, a mother, a friend, or a lawyer. In the absence of someone to stir the pot, It was very civilized, for a while. Then, while working out the property settlement, her lawyer found out that her husband had forgotten to disclose his half-interest in a fast-food franchise, a small matter of a half million dollars. In response, she dropped the blockbuster. She moved to terminate his visitation rights because she claimed he was sexually abusing the seven-year-old. He denied it and countered with a suit for attorney's fees and punitive damages. The case started today, 
and was being tried again. I'm sorry, the case started yesterday and was being tried again today and would probably go on for a good chunk of the next two weeks. I had very little to say, but the wife's lawyer wanted me to testify anyway. In a close case, almost anything might make a difference. I'd followed the husband for a week, and the most interesting thing I found was that he read Penthouse. Plus, I was sure his lawyer would point out on Cross, Time, Sports Illustrated, Business Week, and the New England Journal of Medicine. The wife's attorney, sitting at the counsel table, turned to me, pointed to his watch, and shook his head. The cross-examination of the wife's child psychologist was hopelessly bogged down on the question of her credentials, and they weren't going to reach me that day. The case wasn't on again until the following Wednesday. I was free till then. I nodded, pointed at my own watch to indicate that my meter was off, and headed for the door. My overcoat was already over my arm. No one familiar with the Court of Common Pleas of Philadelphia County leaves their property unattended. There used to be a sign outside the public defender's office, watch your hat, ass, and overcoat until somebody stole it. The corridor was as filthy as the courtroom, but at least there was light, and people, lots of them. The young and shabby dressed ones were there for misdemeanor criminal or for family law cases. The felony defendants were usually older and better dressed. They learned the hard way that making a good impression just might help. The best dressed of all, except for the big-time drug defendants who put everyone to shame, were the civil trial attorneys. There was big money in personal injury work and large commercial claims, and a lot of it was worn on their backs. My own suit, when it was new, had looked like theirs. Now it was dated and worn, and my tie had a small stain. I was dressed well enough for what I did now. I was nearly to the exit, feeling blasts of cold air as people went in and out, when I heard him call my name. The voice was raspy and nasal. I turned. It was Mark Locks, a classmate from law school. He practiced with a small firm out in the suburbs. His hairline had receded since I'd seen him, and he was now wearing new, thicker glasses. His skin was red, probably from a recent Caribbean vacation. He smiled, shook my hand, and said he was so glad to see me. It was all too fast and too hearty, and I wondered what he wanted from me. Hello, Mark. Going well for you? God, hearings coming out of my ears, clients calling all hours. I can't get away from it. My accountant, I'm busy as hell. He stopped himself. Yeah, fine. Look, you know how bad I feel about what happened to you. His voice trailed off. He'd been a jerk when I needed his help, and we both knew it. I said nothing, letting the awkward silence go on. Making him uncomfortable was petty, but that didn't stop me from enjoying it. When he was nervous, I noticed, his smile was a little lopsided. When he was certain that I was going to leave him hanging, he went on. Look, I hear you're doing investigations now. It's the closest thing I can do to keep my hand in, I said, and I sure wasn't going to hang around as somebody's research assistant. I tried to reach you first thing this morning, he said. They said you were out. I hadn't had time to check my messages, but I stayed quiet. I liked leaving him under the impression that I was in no hurry to talk to him, partially because it might give me an advantage in whatever he wanted with me, and partly because it was true. Listen, Dave, I'd like you to do me a favor, he said. Are you set up to handle a rush job? 
Now I do plenty of favors, but not in business, and not for someone who didn't respond to my request for a letter of support when I'd gone before the disciplinary board with my license on the line. I kept my voice disinterested and cautious. How much of a favor and how much of a rush? I need you to do an investigation for a case to be heard this coming Monday at 1.30, he said. I gave a low whistle, watching for his reaction. That gives me just the rest of today and the weekend, I said. Pretty short notice. If you can do it, he said, the fee should be no problem. I'm sure we can agree on an acceptable rate. I looked at his suit and at my own. I knew the money would never wind up in a suit. I had too many other bills, but it gave me something to focus on. Let's go somewhere and hear about it. We put on our overcoats, cut through the perpetual construction around City Hall, and wound up at a small bar near Sanson. He found a quiet corner booth and ordered two coffees. Whatever serious lawyers do after five, they don't drink during the day. Ever do a presumption of death hearing, he asked. Fifteen years ago, I said, fresh out of law school, I did a memo for a partner. Familiar with the law, he asked. Unless it's changed, I said. If all you have is a disappearance, no body or other direct proof of death, the passage of seven years without word gives rise to a presumption of death. If the person were alive, the law assumes that someone would have heard from them. Right, he said, I represent the survivors of a man who disappeared under their circumstances strongly suggestive of his death. His name is, or was, Daniel Wilson. We filed an action to have him declared dead. The hearing is Monday afternoon at 1.30 in Norristown. The insurance company is fighting tooth and nail. Look, Carrier, I asked. I do some work for USF&G and for travelers. I hate to get on their bad side. Oh, neither one of them, he said. Some one long life insurance outfit out of Iowa. Reliant, fidelity, mutual, or something like that. Let's hear more, I told him. Well, Wilson lived in Philly and had offices in the city and in Norristown. I figured that his office in Norristown gave me enough to get the venue in Montgomery County. I don't come into Philadelphia for trials if I can avoid it. The insurance company won't offer a nickel, but they don't care if it's in Philadelphia or Montgomery County. What kind of office, I asked. A law office. Never heard of the guy before this case, though. I made a couple of calls to friends from law school, but neither of them knew him either. Lawyers aren't exactly disappearing kinds of people, I said. We're more like barnacles. Oh, wait till you hear about the disappearance, he said. Just after New Year's, seven years ago. His sister was in town from L.A., and they planned to get together. They're in separate cars, out in the country, Powell Township, Berks County. She finds his car off the road full of bullet holes, plenty of blood, but no body. The police, they can't turn up shit. He was never heard from again. It was short notice, but I had no plans for the weekend. It sounded like a break from skip chases and catching thieving employees. And it paid. Case has been kicking around for months, I said. You didn't decide to hire an investigator this morning. Even in the dimness, I could see he was flustered. Yeah, you're right. You're getting sloppy seconds. The Shriner Agency was handling it till yesterday. I just sat there until he decided to continue. They were doing all the usual interviews, credit checks, asset checks. 
Then they hand-delivered back the file and refunded our retainer, and a letter saying they wouldn't be able to help any further. Someone warned them off, I said. There could be other reasons, he said. This thing smells like organized crime to me, I said. Out of my league. Look, nobody's asking you to find who killed him, he said, even if he is dead. We just need to say that there's no evidence he's alive. That ought to be easy enough. He didn't say the words even for you, but I heard them. Tell that to the Shriner Agency, I said. He finished his coffee. He was anxious to get help, but I was clearly hitting a nerve. Yes or no, he said. I normally worked for a flat $50 an hour. Right then, considering who I was working for and whatever had happened with the Shriner Agency, I wasn't so sure I wanted it. I charge my attorney's rate, I said, 150 per hour, 200 for work outside of business hours, half rate for travel time, plus all expenses. You think you can come up with something for that kind of money, he asked. I haven't the slightest idea, I said. You know how it is. I work by time, not results. That's a lot of money, he said. And it's quarter to 12 on Friday, I pointed out. He gave me the kind of look I don't normally associate with being hired. It was closer to the expression you get when you steal somebody's parking place. But he grunted something that sounded like okay and gave me his business card with his home number on it. And the Shriner file, too. There was so little of it, he was carrying it in his breast pocket. I'll look over this and do what I can this afternoon. When can I talk to the sister, I asked. Give me her card, he said. She's in the area. I'll have her at your office at 9 tomorrow morning. Make it 7, I said. I don't want to lose any time on Saturday. It's tough enough to reach people on Sunday. Okay, he said, but you'll keep me posted, will you? Remember that you're working under the supervision of an attorney. Right. I wanted to tell him that I was working under the supervision of an asshole, but I let it pass. Philadelphia has mild winters. Early January is no longer a time to linger outside. I needed a quiet place to read. I went to Suburban Station and found an empty bench. The Shriner Agency was like the Army, bloated, bureaucratic, and sluggish, but most of its best people moved along after a few years. Yet they were careful and scrupulously honest. That counted for a lot in my business. The file was only about 20 pages, and most of it was negative information. Daniel Wilson hadn't voted in his home district since the time of his disappearance. Neither had he started any lawsuits, mortgaged any real estate, filed for bankruptcy, used his credit cards, joined the armed forces, opened bank accounts, or taken out a marriage license. His driver's license had expired a year after his disappearance and had never been removed, never been renewed. At the time of his disappearance, he had no points on his license and no criminal record. Since then, there had been no activity in his checking or savings accounts. The balances in each were a few hundred dollars. No income taxes or property taxes had been paid in seven years. None of this distinguished Daniel Wilson from somewhere between 10 and 15% of the population. I would need a lot more than this to convince a judge that he was dead. Toward the bottom of the file, I found an interim report by J.B.F., who I knew to be Jonathan Franklin, an investigator I'd worked with before. 
According to the report, at the time of his disappearance, Wilson was 30 years old. Short to medium height, wiry build, brown hair and eyes. Paper clipped to the corner of the first page was a black and white wallet-sized photo of Wilson in a suit and tie. From the date on the back, it was probably his law school graduation portrait. Assuming he graduated at 25, the picture was 12 years old. I had visions of showing it and asking people if they'd ever seen an average-looking guy with glasses and brown hair before. It was a pleasant-looking face, maybe a little bland, but presentable. His cheeks were smooth and pink, and he looked closer to 20 than 25. His glasses weren't the wire-rimmed ones that were fashionable when I was in college, or the high-tech rimless models that yuppies wore now, but good old-fashioned horn rims with heavy frames. He was the kind of face that clients would trust. The family background was minimal. Wilson's father had died when he was a child. His mother was still living and working cleaning offices in Center City. She lived in the Overbrook section of West Philadelphia. There was one sibling, a sister, Lisa, two years older, a former nurse who now lived in a small town upstate. She'd been living in LA, if I remember locks correctly. I figured her for a loyal daughter who moved back east to be close to her mother after Daniel's death, or disappearance, or whatever it was. Neither Lisa nor Daniel had any children. Neither had ever been married. Franklin had come up with some more about Wilson's grade and high school education. Wilson was consistently a superior student, not brilliant, but always near the top of his class. He was seldom absent hardly ever late with work assignments, and never a discipline problem. Several of his high school classmates had been contacted. They remembered him as serious and hardworking. He played no sports, but he was active with the school literary magazine and newspaper. He had a few dates, but no one remembered a steady girlfriend. Except to tell me that he attended Gettysburg College, was secretary of the photography club, and obtained a degree in history, the college section was a blank. I wasn't surprised. In high school, everyone knows everyone, but people are too busy in college to know more than a couple people well. Investigating backgrounds at a college level is usually helpful only if the subject was very well known or if the school was very small. I was reading with only half my attention by then. I was trying to imagine the kind of man behind the picture and what was the judge going to make of him. I hoped he wouldn't decide that Wilson was the kind of loner who would pull up stakes and disappear without a word to anybody. The next section was hardly more help. After college, three years at Temple Law School, graduating about one-third the way from the top, he passed the bar on the first try and set up practice in, city, in Center City with the classmate, Leo Strasnick. When Wilson disappeared five years later, the partnership already had three associates with offices in Philadelphia and Norristown nice growth. I rubbed my eyes and looked at my watch. It was nearly one, and this was the only business day before the day of the hearing. The rest of the file would have to wait. One of the advantages of the suburban station was plenty of phone booths. My investigation got off on the right foot. Not only was Leo Strasnick available, he agreed to see me at four that afternoon. His office was only a few blocks from the station. I tried Shriner's next. Shriner Security Agency, how may we help you? She sounded like a recording herself. Um, Mr. Franklin, please. 
And who, may I say, is calling? She was good. If my gross ever broke into seven figures, I promised myself I would get a receptionist who talked that well and to take lessons from her. Just say I'm calling regarding the Wilson case. I was curious to see if that would be enough to get me through. Yeah, this is John Franklin, was all he said, but it was enough. Something was bothering him. His words were unnaturally clipped and his voice was too loud, too fast. Hello, John. This is Dave Garrett. You said you were calling about Wilson? Yeah, right, I said as casually as I could. Remember me, John? We worked together on those tools disappearing out of Sun Shipbuilding. I was... I, I remember. I've just taken it over, I said. There was silence on the other end. I've read your report and I assume there's more than you had time to put in writing. More silence. Look, John, the case is coming up Monday, for Christ's sake. Cut me some slack. You want my advice, he asked? Don't take the case. The lawyer guaranteed payment, I said, being deliberately stupid. I had a lot of practice at that. No amount of money is worth it. I'd been expecting him to say that, but he was at the biggest agency in the state, a 15-year veteran of the Philadelphia police. Can we get together somewhere, I asked. I've already told you all you need to know, he said, and he hung up. All right, that is the first chapter of The January Corpse by Neil Albert. So here's my review. It is a PI mystery. Former lawyer turned investigator Dave Garrett is picking up sloppy seconds with this case. The family of Daniel Wilson has filed suit to declare the man missing for over seven years as dead to claim the insurance benefit. Which should be a chore of routine investigation into a cold case gets messy, mean, and dirty in the blink of an eye. Bottom line, the January corpse is for you if you like fast-thinking private eyes, cases with too many loose ends, and action and adventure in Pennsylvania Dutch country. So what are the strengths of this story? So Dave Garrett is an intellectual PI who uses his head rather than brute force for investigating. Being an ex-attorney, he is a different take on a private investigator than characters with backgrounds, say, in law enforcement or in military. Um, Dave has some emotional scars, making him an interesting character and somewhat of an outsider, and you certainly started getting taste of that in the first chapter. The mystery itself is right-sized for something that has to be solved in three days. You would think after seven years, it wouldn't be so easy to solve the disappearance of Dan Wilson. Does Dave get lucky? Well, some could say that, but Dave invests the time and the tenacity that, tended, that ended up paying off. No one gifted him with the answers. He earned every single one. And that's really one of the biggest strengths. Dave Garrett is the hero of his own story. The setting is Philadelphia, 1990. I really love the details on Philly and the surrounding area, the kind that comes from an author really knowing it. For example, there's a passage discussing the odd travel patterns that some days it takes you 10 minutes to get into the city and then you're stuck in gridlock for three blocks. Other times it takes you 90 minutes, but once you're in the city, you're free and clear. You don't get those types of observations if you're just using Google Earth. The descriptions of the neighborhoods, the people, and the buildings really added a lot of texture to the story. The pacing is excellent for those of us looking for a reason to binge read a book in one sitting. Yeah, I did that. When Dave gets the case Friday morning, as you just heard, is with the expectation that he has to appear in court to testify Monday afternoon. The clock starts ticking immediately. 
I like that part of the story includes Dave weighing what's the best use of his limited time, especially the limited business hours. In that short period, that three days, there is a fight, a car chase, a hostage situation, and a hot chili pepper romance scene. So there is just so much going on in this book uh, that the pacing really keeps you engaged. So where did the story fall short of the ideal PI story? There's not much to pick on here. The logic of the story held up well, as you know I always look for. The events that were surprising and action-packed when you're reading it made full sense with the benefit of hindsight. And as often as the case with PI stories, people lie to Dave, but he sniffs out the truth in a way that where he again is doing the heavy lifting of the sleuthing, i.e. there's no coincidences or other cheap tricks, and the lies make sense for the characters that told them. I will give you a word of warning and an explanation. You may see some typesetting errors, like open quotes at the end of dialogue instead of closed quotes. Um, trading notes with Neil, technology has been working against him, as it does to all of us at one time or the other. So he is aware of them and he's working to correct them. If you find one, treat it like a, a four-leaf clover, you know, something to smile about as you continue reading this very excellent story. So The January Corpse was released on Amazon and is promoted by Partners in Crime Tours and is now available from Amazon. A little bit about our author, Neil Albert. Neil is a trial lawyer in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and this book is based on real, on a real presumption of death hearing. That's pretty cool. He has completed nine of the projected 12 books in the Dave Garrett series and hopes to finish with December within the next two years. His interest in writing mysteries was kindled by reading Ross MacDonald. Neil operates a blog with an in-depth analysis of each of MacDonald's books. In his younger years, he was an avid fox hunter. His best memory is that he hunted for 15 years and was the only member of his group not to be seriously injured at least once. And note that means that other people were seriously injured multiple times. So there's a link to Neil's um, website and then also, of course, to the Amazon site. Uh, Partners in Crime uh, represents a network of 300 plus bloggers offering tailor-made virtual book tours and marketing options for crime, mystery, and thriller writers from around the world. Founded in 2011, PICT offers virtual book tour services for well-established and best-selling authors, as well as those just starting out their careers. PICT prides itself on tailored packages for authors with a personal touch from the tour coordinators. For more information, check out their website, partnersincrimetours.com. The link is in the show notes. So thank you for joining us this week. Come back next week for Mysteries to Die For Season 7, Games People Play. It's, it's a good one. Cow Flop Bingo is our featured game in A Scent of Murder by Paul A. Barra. And with that, I'll turn it over to Jack to take us out.